So welcome everybody to episode six of the White Shark Interest Group podcast. We are Facebook's largest White Shark specific group. Currently at time of recording, we are just shy of 47,000 members. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're not a member, and I know that's some of you out there, please get over to Facebook, just search the White Shark Interest Group, hit the join button and you'll be asked a question about why you want to join. And if it's just because you heard the podcast, please tell us and give us a shout out there. Educate, conserve and protect. We like to share discussion, debate, as well as the pictures and videos that I know a lot of people come to see around what we love, which is Great White Shark. So we've got something a little bit different for you today. We've got another guest episode and I have an absolute treat for you because I am super, super stoked to welcome very good friend, the amazing Mr. Brandon Kilbride to the show. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad to be on the show. Thanks very much for hosting you, Carter. I've been itching to get you on here, to be honest, Brandon. Just a little background for, for folks who may not have seen him, and I'm not going to do a shameless plug for the film I made because I do that every week. Brandon, I, I met when I went out as a tourist with my wife to South Africa and Brandon was working out as a dive master on um, on Rob Lawrence's boat out in False Bay in South Africa. Goes without saying, was an amazing time, but it, bizarrely, uh, we've ended up living about an hour away from each other in the UK, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, is, which still blows my mind. He's a photographer, he's a surfer, he's a dive master, He's been around surfing and sharks, fair to say, all your life, Brandon? Yeah, pretty much. I've been involved in the sea since I was, I think, five years old. Um, it was the first time I picked up a surfboard down at Musenberg Beach. I think it's quite famous today with regards to white shark spottings. It seems to be sort of a bit of a highway for them, you know, off the coast. I suppose it's probably part of their migration pattern during the summertime. And yeah, I've been surfing, paddle skiing, life-saving, diving, probably I'd say for the last 32 years of my life in False Bay. It's been great. You told me a great story that still makes me laugh when I hear it about how when you're in school and you kind of bunked out of school to go surfing at the beach. And <laughs> I was in, uh, I think it's what grade one is what you call it here in the UK. I think I was uh, six years old and I asked my teacher at the time if I could please go to the bathroom and she said, yeah, no, no problem. That's fine. And what I did was I actually uh, took my, we had, we used to hang our, our um, school bags on hooks outside the classroom during those days. And I quickly took my bag off the thing and I didn't go to the bathroom. I jumped on my bicycle and I went and I visited Musenberg Beach with a few friends and we had a surf. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I did get caught. Um, and the, the mother quickly uh, evacuated me back to the house, back to my uni- my uniform, and I was back in the classroom very quickly. What a way to bunk off, though. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm bunking off to go surf on the beach at like six years old. Yeah, that is too cool. Too cool for school. Probably it, It's probably not a safe thing to do nowadays, but in those days, it was uh, class as a cool thing to do, I suppose. Well... From a guy who grew up, you know, in sort of Canada and the UK where we bunked off to go and, I don't know, hang around the shops and, you know, cause trouble. <laughs> I think surfing's a healthier way of doing it for sure. So, I mean, that's what I wanted to talk to you about today and why I wanted to get you on the show. I mean, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about a million things around sharks, but I want to talk to you specifically about surfing um, and surfing with sharks. We have tons of surfers on the group. In fact, only today, one of the members who requested to join put in just said, normally people say, like, I'm a surfer. I just want to understand what's out there with me. I want to know more about sharks. I want to educate myself. So yeah. so being a surfer, what's it like being a surfer out there on the water, especially somewhere like South Africa, where you know 
that there are great white sharks around you. There, there have to be great white sharks there. What, what's that like? From a person who loves the ocean and takes takes pride and passion for what they get out of being in the sea. You know, surfers, I think majority of us know the inherent risks that, that they take when they're going into the sea. They know that there's predators out there that, you know, there's potentially the risk of being, you know, a victim to a shark attack. But 99.9% of the time, those sharks are not there to to hunt or to um, attack human beings. They're purely there doing their daily thing, uh, looking for seals, uh, migration patterns. It's always mistaken identity, I would say, when it comes to a shark attack. If you look at a surfer sitting on a surfboard, he's got two legs, you know, hanging over. Uh, he's got his hands splashing in the water. It's very much making very similar movements to what a to what a seal would be doing, you know. So we all know those inherent risks, and we take those risks because we know it's it's probably the best way of clearing one's head. If you've had a tough day at work, or if it's it's a great way to start the weekend, get up early, go for a surf. It's like my playground basically at the end of the day. Yeah. Even if there's no waves, just to be in the sea, get the salt water over my head. It's just a it's an amazing way for for someone to spend their quality time in in, in the ocean if they want to. But at that point, let's say you're at Musingberg Beach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got the shark spotter flags there, which I want yeah. to talk about the shark spotter uh, thing today as well. At that point, you've had you've had the, you know, the crappy day at work, you're stressed out, I'm going to go for a surf. And you get out there and you've got your suit on, you've got your board ready. At any point in that process, getting into the water, does it enter into your head? And I better watch out for sharks today. Personally, I've I've never had a worry, you know, looking out for sharks because... I believe that there's a there's a thing in in the surfing community. It's called safety numbers. Mm-hmm. So when you're out there, you've sometimes got you know two, three, four hundred people in the water, and um, so your chances of being attacked by a shark is very, very slim. So I don't even think about it. You know, I just think about just getting out there, and maybe meeting one or two of my friends, and then just looking for that perfect ride. You know, yeah. And it's generally always the first wave of your session that determines how good a session you're going to have. Okay. For me, if, if I have a really, really good wave, it just makes me more stoked, more amped, more excited to just, you know, go out there and not even think about sharks. I know they're there, but sure. like I said earlier, it's the ocean is is my playground and I love just being, you know, in, in it. Well, one of the things that we've talked about before and we've talked about on this group as well is is the whole fear of, of sharks and, and why we fear sharks, you know, compared to, say, land-based predators. Yeah. I grew up with a, well, until I came out to South Africa to dive with sharks, I had a, a horrendous fear of water, yeah. especially the sea. It wasn't the sharks so much. It was just the vastness of, of the ocean. Mm. You're a different breed if you see the vast ocean and your first thought is, hey, I want to get in there. You know, I want to get my board. I want to go in. But I've seen like footage of you, you know, which we even put in the film where you're just out there by yourself sometimes or with a few other people. Mm. Let's say it's at sun, sunrise or sunset. Yeah. And it's just you and you, you, you're sort of in the water next to your board. Yeah. Are you telling me like you don't, you really don't entertain the idea at that point of, hey, something could be around me right now. In the earlier days, when when I first started surfing, I mean, I'm talking now in the late 80s, I, I picked up my first surfboard. You know, w- when you're that young, you, there's definitely no, there's not inclined to think about sharks or shark attacks or anything like that. Yeah. Over time, since I'd say the early 2000s, probably since 2000, 2000, 2001, white sharks in particular have started making a more visible appearance of themselves inshore. Okay. You know, I always believe they've been there. People are now looking out for them a lot more. So obviously the media is is attracted to this, you know, and, and they tend to blow things up. So 
you know, now people are becoming more aware that sharks are there. They're becoming a lot more sort of than that they need to be on the lookout. You know, there was one or two shark attacks. It puts everybody on edge. Yeah. Definitely one or two surf spots around Cape Town in particularly where there aren't any shark spotters, which does give you a little bit of, you know, gives you makes your hair stand up sometimes. You know, you might be sitting out there and you think, oof, you know, you feel this maybe your feet moving and you see the swirl come up next to you, you know. And yeah. It definitely does pass or go through your mind. But then again, you know, it's it's the risk that you prepare to take to be in the ocean. As for surfing at Musenberg or Cork Bay or any of the locations along the coast where there's shark spotters, I generally feel quite relaxed because I know there's someone always watching out over us. Yeah, I should explain to people who may not be aware of it what the shark spotters sort of program is. I guess in South Africa, around the areas that, that Brandon's talking about there, around sort of Musenberg, Cork Bay and around Cape Town area, you've got the topography of the mountains overlooking the sea pretty much everywhere so basically the shark spotters program as it is now is that it'll be a combination of guys up on the mountains watching out in the sea uh, and looking at distance for presence of sharks and then when they are spotted i believe it's then obviously raising the the flag system to alert people so you're going to get different levels i mean can you just explain what the what you're looking for as a surfer you hit the beach you're looking at the flags what is it you what is it you're looking for the shark spotting program, I think it's, I would class as a real game changer, particularly along that False Bay coast. It was initiated and started in 2004 by a guy called Greg Burtish. At that time, it wasn't a, it, it was a sort of a, people from the from the public used to provide funds and uh, used to work with along with the local fishermen who would always be up on the mountain because they, they used to do the traditional trick, uh, sort of sane per sane netting. Yep. They started to work purely with the, the fishermen. And then as as it sort of gained momentum, you know, companies started jumping on board and started providing funding. And that's when we were able to actually employ people. And that's when the flag system was introduced. So currently you've got the flag system, which would be a green flag, which means the water's crystal clear, really, really good visibility. Then you've got a black flag, which means the visibility is quite bad. Yep. Ideally, you don't want to go too far out, so it's sort of at your own risk. Then you've got a red flag, which means there's been a shark sighted in uh, the last hour. Yeah. And then you've got the black flag as well. And the black flag is, um, or should I say a black and white flag, is when there is a, um, a shark currently in the water. So it's a white flag with a black shark in the middle, which gets flown up. And that's your flag system. When you pitch up at the beach, you know, you, you want to have a look at the, at, at the flags. Yep. And majority of the time in Cape Town, because we have the traditional wind through summer is the southeaster. And that southeaster tends to make the water very sort of churned up. Um, so you generally have quite bad visibility. I know, I've, I've, I've been in one of those winds. It nearly took my head off. Tends to blow sometimes for up to two weeks at a time. So most of the time it's the black flag. But, you know, the guys which are on the mountain shark spotting, they are brilliant. They are ex-fishermen generally. So they know exactly what to look out for. And they've got extremely, extremely good eyes. You know, like I put my life in their hands any day. Well, I guess, I guess you are doing, aren't you? That's, that's exactly it. You know, you're entering the water knowing that, that someone has got your back. But like I said in the beginning, the chances of being attacked by a shark is very, very slim. You know, more people die in rip currents than shark attacks. So it's 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 very low risk. When you're out surfing, do you think about those other risks as well? Are you more are you more focused on you know how the waves are performing, the wind, the you know again the the rocks and so on? Are you thinking about that more than sharks? Yeah, I mean, I think you know if you're surfing a place like Cork Bay Reef, for instance, for me, it's more about your positioning to the reef and not about the sharks. Yeah, because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time at Cork Bay Reef, and you get caught on the inside. That reef is very, very shallow and it can can really give you 
a good old pounding and you'll be in you'll end up on the on the rocks you can damage your back i've known people there who've almost broken their necks yeah in terms of that when you're pitching up at different surf spots yes i do definitely do take into account uh rip currents where the rocks are as somebody from from the local area you generally know what spot to go to on a particular wind a particular swell size personally for me i tend to not even think about anything i just want to get in the water and go surf and have fun i think as soon as you put that fear into your head before you even got into the water start thinking about sharks you're not going to have a good surf because that's what you're going to be thinking about the whole time that makes more sense to me i guess you just want to try and just forget about the whole uh, this whole shark thing, you know, because generally, like I said, you've got someone watching your back, you've got safety numbers, you've got your mates out there to talk and have fun. And the time where it does come across your mind where you do start thinking of sharks when you're man alone. Yeah. In a very sort of isolated area, such as a, a place called Nurtuk. Um, there's a uh, there's a surf break down the beach, which is called the Dunes. The nearest um, accessibility for a car is about two miles or three kilometers away. Wow. So if someone does get bitten, and unfortunately someone did uh, get attacked at that beach in 2003, I think it was, and he died within you know, less than a minute. It was such a severe shark attack. There's not much hope if you if you if you get bitten badly down there. Because purely it takes it takes so long to go and get help. Yeah. That beach specifically is probably the one which plays in the back of my mind the most. But again, you, there's really got to be some kind of mentality shift there that says I'm going to trek, you know, that that length of distance out from where I can park my car to go surf, you really must be in like a, you know, a surf zen moment to to want to go ride that those waves in that area. That particular surf break um, the dunes is a world, world, world class wave. On its day in summertime, when the swell is good and the and the southeast is blowing, because it is mostly a it is mostly a summer wave. Because what happens? All the sand blows from the beach, and it creates a bottom topography which is very similar to the waves that which you'd get in Indonesia or the Mentawi Islands. It's these perfect cylindrical, it's a phenomenal wave. I'd, I'd encourage any anybody listening to this podcast, just even get, head over to YouTube and just check out some videos uh, of that area because, yeah, yeah the, the waves there are spectacular, almost like, almost like glass in the right weather with the right light. 100%, you know, but also saying that at the same time, it's a very, very uh, challenging wave, a very heavy wave. And I certainly wouldn't recommend it for someone who's uh, who's starting out, who's learning to surf. It's not a beginner wave. It's it's definitely more sort of upper intermediate to advanced. If you're going to go down there, go with your friends or experience in the area and uh, know your limits. And failing all else, do a Mick Fanning and punch the shark in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone saw that clip. I'll stick it in the in the comments below. But that, that famous incident, it was a televised surf event, wasn't it? It was a televised competition and, and the shark pops up next to next to Mick Fanning. And yeah, that was unbelievable. Yes, pop. I, I was That's crazy. I was actually watching that that event live. Um on the Oh, you saw it live? Yeah, wow. I was actually watching it live on the on the W on the World Championship uh, or the World uh, Surf League. The incident actually happened at Jeffreys Bay. Um and once again, you know, Jeffreys Bay, it's a point break and those sharks are using that point as a navigational route, you know. So they're coming in shore and they're sticking along the the, the shelves of the rocks and they just they're on the on the on the on the daily sort of you know, patrol or, or migration patterns or, um, but I think what happened, that animal came up to have a look at Mick and unfortunately got his mouth stuck in its leash. Yep. You know, he had all that commotion going on and there was one stage where Mick got pulled under the water before the leash snapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the shark moved off. And I firmly believe, you know, if if, if sharks were 
targeting human beings as a as a prey item, that shark would have pushed through with that attack totally. You know, but he came up, he got this funny plastic thing in his in his mouth, realized that yep. definitely not what he's after, and actually got a fright and moved off. You'll know this, obviously, from working out on the on the boats out in False Bay. That particularly great whites, you know, are lauded as this, you know, massive apex predator, king of the oceans, and yet they're ridiculously cautious creatures. They will flee anything. I've seen them like be next to the cage, and yeah. you know, and seen just like you know a, a, a pole go in the water, or you know, the, somebody clinks the side of the boat in the wrong way, or something, and shoot, they're off. They're not there to just pounce on you, are they? They're very cautious. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, the, the, these these great whites, they, like you said, they're very cautious. They come up if they feel slightly threatened or, you know, something's not, not aligning up for them, they'll move off. It even comes down to, you know, like you said, like if you've a lot of people in the cage and there's, you know, who are there to, to experience and, and understand and educate themselves about these, about these sharks, that these sharks will come in and then if they feel that there's too much movement in the cage or people are, you know, moving their hands and feet about, they'll move off. And this is exactly why when you do go cage diving, that the operators will say to you, look, try and keep as still as possible, try to, try to make as minimal movement as possible. These sharks are, are, are totally aware of what's going on around them. As soon as they feel uneasy, they, they're going to move off. You know, in, in today's times with, with cage diving, if you go cage diving, which I think a lot of people should do because, you know, it's, it's, it's a fantastic experience. And you just, you get to know how these sharks actually operate. They're not the man eaters. I think that was one of the biggest surprises for, for myself and Rachel, mm. um, having the, having the fear when we first went out to see sharks. Yeah. I remember being on, on the boat the first day out and you were there. Yeah. And I remember you were, you were pointing out like breaches happening in the distance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm just like, Oh, half of me was kind of like, I hope he's kidding, because I came here to see sharks jump out of the water. But man, are sharks really jumping out of the water? You know, so the fear was so strong. But within within seconds, and seeing one just rise out of the water slowly, the perception just changed. It, it just felt like I've been lied to about how how these creatures are portrayed, and it, it's hard to get that across though to people who haven't been out there and done that, isn't it? One one hundred percent. You know, and I, I think you know. This is where you know I've I've worked for for a number of, of of cage diving operations and every single operation that I've worked with you know including Rob and 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 the rest of them they've all been extremely willing to let me bring my friends out who were initially totally against cage diving are oh, you guys you, you know you you feeding the sharks you know the sharks are following the boats back to you know past the beaches and then I say to them, look, have you ever been cage diving? And they're like, no. So I said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll organize a complimentary trip for you. You come out with us, come and see the sharks, and then you can make a judgment. 100% of the time, the guys will come out, they'll see how we operate, they'll see that these sharks are not just automatically attracted to the boats when you put your anchor down. Sometimes you can wait up to five or six hours. Sometimes you don't even see them. And they, their whole perspective on the cage diving industry changes but where does that come from in the first place then that i've never understood this because when we were when we were initially looking for for sort of backers and funding for for the film we made we obviously we'd approached a couple of surf surf companies yeah 
who initially said yes, and then at some point got spooked and went, actually, uh, we're getting a bit of backlash at just the idea, like internally. So yeah, because yeah. it involves cage diving. Well, once people realized what we were making was actually pro cage diving and pro ecotourism, people like shot off the off the off the scene. You know, we we can't get involved with that. And they were very nice about saying it, but it was yeah. it was obviously a case of they were getting pressure from somewhere to to not get involved there. Yeah, but, I mean, where's that where's that come from well, on the surface? Yeah, I, I think you know. Particular, some surfers, I should add, not some, all surfers. Some, some surfers, yeah. I mean, I, I still have some some very vocal friends when it comes to cage diving who are totally against it, you know, and they and they're not scared to voice their voice their opinions. Um, oh, they must have loved you out in the lineup, then, yeah. <laughs> I, I just tend to say it as it is, you know. And I think, you know, majority of the time, these guys who are commenting have actually been in the water, and sharks have actually come past, and the shark alarm's gone off, and they've actually, you know, you know, gone in and and been totally fine. It's all it's all within um, within reason, you know. I can understand where where they're coming from, but then I also try and get my point across, just to try and explain to them, you know. W- what we're actually doing but when it comes down to surf industry you know you're looking at these the major surf companies i'm not going to name any of them but you know they they've got sponsored riders they've got sponsored athletes most of the time their their athletes potentially might be against the cage diving you know so if they see that their sponsored company is now sponsoring a cage diving or a documentary that's that's involving cage diving you know, they might decide. Well, geez, I'm not gonna. I don't want to be. I don't want to be interested in a in a in a company that's supporting these these sort of things. So I think it more comes down to their, you know, to the bottom line. I think it all comes down to their figures. You know, at the end of the day. But for the surfers in the water, though, is it that cage diving operations? They think are potentially going to do something that then will lead to them being harmed in the water or is it a respect for the animal or is it leave the ocean alone i'm not asking you to speak for all surfers obviously but you know you have been in that lifestyle and and you know and being a, an avid surfer for so long yeah i mean i think you know most majority majority of surfers nowadays like i said understand you know the inherent dangers but what they don't agree with, and once again, it comes down to their perspective of cage diving, is that they think that the cage diving operations are going out there, they're feeding these sharks. That's what they're saying they don't like. Why? Because they, they say that shark diving boats are associating humans with food. In turn, these sharks are now coming to, say, Cork Bay Harbour, where there's, you know the, the fishermen are cleaning their fish in the harbour and the, and the fish is being thrown into the harbour. They're saying that these sharks are following the boats back from Seal Island to Cork Bay Harbour, which is not the case. There's no way a white shark can maintain swimming at 28 knots for a period of eight or 10 miles. Yeah. But that just comes down to being uneducated and not actually being or going on a shark diving boat before before making your comments. That they think that that will then lead to an increase in in like negative shark incidents because they're going to come to closer to the shores and start having an investigatory chomp on people. Exactly, 100%. But then I think, you know, they, they don't actually understand the movement patterns of, of these great whites. So, for instance, you know, in False Bay through wintertime, you know, the, the white sharks start to arrive to Seal Island, I'd probably say late January, February, they start appearing in small numbers. And then your high season around Seal Island, where there's generally a big congregation of white sharks is sort of sort of May, June, July, August, um, where the sharks purely come there to hunt seals. They fatten up because the seals are nice and blubby, and then they move off again, and then they potentially might be back at the end of the season. But what yeah. happens in the summertime? The seals are are generally pupping and and mating. There's 
very limited food source for these animals around around sea colony. So what these sharks do, they're moving inshore and they're going to go and feed off other shark species, smooth iron shark. They're going to go and feed off yellowtail, which is, which is a very, very healthy, good food source for them. That is directly off where these surfers are surfing. So it's not that the cage diving boats are bringing these sharks to to the shore it's their natural migration pattern which they've been doing for hundreds of years if that argument about them following the the fishing boats and the cage diving boats back to the harbor that harbor in false bay just be full all the time and you don't see that i mean it's very rare from what i understand that i've ever seen documented is a great white shark anywhere in the in the harbor in false bay very rare i've i've never ever heard of a great white shark swimming in 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 those harbors in cork bay i've seen one set of pictures that if i can find them i'll, I'll post on under this on the group uh and it goes way, way, way back. I think it was something like 2007 or something. There was one shark in the in the harbour, and it was like that's, that's the only time I've ever ever heard of it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard of seals being being predated on outside of Cork Bay Harbour. There's there's a there's a very shallow pinnacle uh, where the seals tend to congregate and and um, you know play in the waves. Um, but either side of that, it's a very very sudden drop off. So I think it could potentially go from sort of maybe one meter. And it drops off uh, maybe down to eight or ten meters. So it's very similar to the what what we dubbed the launch pad at Seal Island. Yeah, you know where a lot of a lot of predatory events happen between the Cape Fur seals and the Great Whites is where these seals they they sort of drift into deeper water, which now you know the sharks are there. They know that that's you know prime hunting area for them. That's exactly what happened at Cork Bay, and that was a that was a really really big bull seal which got taken. And he was upwards of four hundred kilos. Wow. Yeah, big animal. I've seen those guys sat around they are they are beasts big, they are big, massive big big animals yeah and then you think about the big animal that takes them out and that must be a really big animal <laughs> <laughs> well these sharks you know these these white sharks you know they they're born at um i think maybe one and a half to 1.8 meters and they predominantly won't they won't start feeding on seals straight away but maybe when they sort of hit that two meter mark just over two meters they'll start trying to attempt to take seals yeah their teeth are she's I've never I've never felt anything so sharp in my life. We had we had one tooth which the shark actually bit onto a sort of a floating buoy which was just randomly floating in the ocean. We were actually coming up to pick up all right. He bit on this buoy and uh, he actually left a tooth in the buoy. Um, which was extremely lucky. Well, yeah, I mean, not many people will, will get to see that. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, we we felt the serrations on, on the side of these teeth, and it wasn't a big tooth. It was you know, very, very, very sharp. Eh? Wow. It you how you can see these predations which go on, and it's, it it won't take a big animal to, to take down a you know these seals when you see obviously like a seal get predated on and you know the whole sort of chase starts if the if the shark hasn't taken it out straight away and then you see some of the lacerations and some of the the wounds on these seals and you think how the heck are you guys like still swimming and doing this chase with that i mean you know yeah, i guess yeah. just the sheer size of so again like some of these seals but again I, I think from what i observed and from what you guys and rob ever educated me on is mm. you know these sharks are smart the sharks won't won't aren't gonna go you know, usually for those big seals, for those huge seals, they're going to pick off the stragglers. They're going to pick off the sick ones. They're going to they're going to be very selective about how they hunt. Is that is that fair to say? Hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head. Eve. These sharks are, are opportunistic animals, and they know that if they if they lose their eyes, for instance, you know that they lose the ability to hunt, um, and more than likely that shark's going to end up dying. Because if a shark can't eat, he's going to lose, he's losing energy and he's just going to, you know, you'll unfortunately die. So they, they tend to not go for the bigger seals because these seals, they, 
tend to bite them on the on on the on the nose of the sharks. Seals have actually got claws as well. They, they tend to go for like you said, the stragglers, the ones which, uh, for instance, if, if a group's leaving, you get the smaller ones trying to go with slightly bigger seals. They can't keep up with them. They tend to fall off the back. And those are the ones which the sharks are going to target. And it's normally what we will call sort of young of the year seals. So sort of three to sort of three months to a year, you know, really, really young seals, inexperienced. They don't know the, the area. They go, they swim out into deep water, not knowing that these these sharks are here. And nine out of 10 times, the seals which get taken are are young of the year, young of the year seals. I don't think I've ever actually seen a big bull seal being predated on at Seal Island. I might have seen a, an attempt on a group, on a group of of fairly biggish seals. Yeah. They're super clever. What they would do is if a shark had to, you know, predate through an LD sort of group of seals, those seals would stop straight away. Yeah. And they would they would follow the shark and they'd actually jump onto the shark's tail, which actually makes it a lot more difficult for the shark to turn um, and try and, and try and catch them. And they'll just do that constantly until the shark sort of loses interest or he gets tired and then he gives up the chase. Whereas the smaller ones would tend to just disperse and, you know, run for their lives. And that's when, you know, it's, it's an easy target for the shark to just follow him on the bottom and then just, you know, come from there. And they do that Polaris beach where they come straight from the bottom, yep. 30 miles an hour, and, and they hit that seal and it's just, you know, it, it's probably one of the most spectacular things to see from a from a, someone who's photographing these events. But at the same time, you have to feel for that little guy. You know, he knows what's what's chasing him. It's funny, isn't it? Because obviously you see that straggler shark and you see, you know, all the cameras suddenly point to it. Yeah. And there's part of, your, part of your mind while you've got your viewfinder pointing at this thing that says, on the one hand, come on, shark, you know, take this guy, I want to see this. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, this is really sadistic. Yeah. We've got like five guys here all pointing their lenses at this poor little guy, but hey, it's nature. That, that, that's exactly it. You know, it's it's totally it's 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 totally nature. You know, as, as hard as as hard as it is to watch, sometimes you know, I've seen one seal, and this will stick in my mind for a long time. You know, we we had the yeah. seal got predated on by by three different great whites coming in from maybe a mile and a half away from Seal Island. He he yeah. he escaped three attempts literally five meters from the island he was really tired which actually makes it a lot more difficult for the shark to turn and, and try and, and try and catch them and they'll just do that constantly until the shark sort of loses interest or he gets tired and then he gives up the chase whereas the smaller ones would tend to just disperse and you know run for their lives and that's when you know it's, it's an easy target for the shark to just follow him on the bottom and then just you know come from there and they do that Polaris speech where they come straight from the bottom yep. 30 miles an hour and and they hit that seal and it's just you know it, it's probably one of the most spectacular things to see from a from a, someone who's photographing these events but at the same time you have to feel for that little guy you know he knows what's what's chasing him it's funny isn't it because obviously you see that straggler shark and you see you know, all the cameras suddenly point to it. And yeah. there's part of your part of your mind while you've got your viewfinder pointing at this thing that says, on the one hand, come on, shark, you know, take this guy, I want to see this. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, this is really sadistic. Yeah. We've got like five guys here all pointing their lenses at this poor little guy, but hey, it's nature. That, that, that's exactly <laughs> it. You know, it's it's totally, it's 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 totally nature. You know, as, as, hard as, as hard as it is to watch sometimes, you know, I've seen one seal and this will stick in my mind for a long time. You know, we, we had the seal got predated on by, by three different great whites. Oh. 
coming in from maybe a mile and a half away from Seal Island, he, he, he escaped three attempts, literally five meters from the island. He was really tired. He was just, you know, swimming on the surface. Generally, the seals would, would swim, swim on the bottom for the last, I'd say, 80 to 100 meters, because that's the most critical area for them. And be, for them, being on the bottom is the most safest area. And this guy, this little guy was just really tired. And the fourth white shark had to go at him. And it was just, it was literally just one full vertical breach, mouth open. There was no chase after it. It was one, it was one bite, gone, finished. Oh, um, so like it was, it was, re- that was probably the saddest, saddest moment for me to see a seal not make it off to, off to so many like attempts and he got away. Unfortunately, at the last little leg, he uh, succumbed. He gets it. We saw one once that was, um, it, 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 obviously the instant, the first strike had not hit the seal. I think it had cut it slightly. And this, you know, this chase went on for like 25 minutes. Wow. The shark was exhausted, clearly. Wow. And this poor seal, he's doing everything. He's flipping in and out of the water. He's going to the back. He's trying anything. He's coming around the bow, anything to just sort of like, you know, get out of the way, stay safe. Yeah. And then eventually the shark gave up, just exhausted. Yeah. And I watched this little guy with his cut swim. By that time, cameras went off. It's like, oh, and end, end of the sh- end of the game. Sure. And the poor little guy got all the way back just towards the island. Mm. And then, yeah. And then along comes another one and just pop pops him out of the water and just takes him. And it's like, oh man, that guy put such a fight up. It's hard. It is hard to watch. It is hard to watch. Yeah. And it's and it's hard not to root for the seal sometimes. Yeah, I think once you've once you've kind of seen the shark and you've seen the breach, which can change your life. Absolutely just change your perspective on on the animal and the water. Just, you know, a phenomenal sight. But once you've seen that, yeah, there's a part of you that probably thinks, okay, well I've I've seen what I needed to see. I don't need to see this seal getting bitten in half, you know. I'm yeah. not I don't need to witness that. But Yeah. I mean, speaking of false bear, one thing, I mean, it's a bit of an elephant in the room at the moment, but I know people are interested about um, just the, the whole thing of the sharks, white sharks not being not being around in false bay. I mean, there's a possible report that while we were on lockdown, I think there was a couple of reports somebody did see see some sharks, but no one's been out there to sort of check that out. That, have you got any thoughts about that whole situation, whether it's the orcas, water quality, this fishing of other shark species causing issues? Have you any thoughts from what you've seen on it? No, Ricardo, 100%. You know, when it, when it comes to the disappearance of the white sharks in, in False Bay, um, since 2011, um, we've started seeing a definite increase in the presence of uh, various pods of orcas. Um, in false bay now we're not sure if it's if it's due to you know um, the sardine run where these animals are sort of moving up the east coast following the sardines but they you know they they, they're coming into false bay because obviously the dolphins are moving up the coast and these orcas tend to hunt the dolphins as well so we've definitely seen a, a big increase in in orca populations orca pods and there's not just one pod there's a couple of pods of of sort of three to sort of six animals in a pod. But I also think that the other contributing factor to the lack of white sharks in False Bay definitely comes down to the overfishing of uh, one of the white sharks sort of primary food sources, which is the smooth hound shark. Mm. Now, this is a, is, is a commercially acceptable uh, fishery. And w- what's actually happening, 
there's a market for Australia. These sharks are being sold in fish shops as flake and chips. Yeah. So these sharks are being fished in South Africa and they're being exported out to Australia and sold in, in Australian uh, in Australian shops. And this is definitely played into the negative presence of white sharks because these white sharks used to feed on the on these smooth hounds. Um, and now obviously no not many smooth hounds being caught overfishing. You know, these white sharks have now decided that, well, there's no food for us during summer months. Uh, or even in, in the winter, we're moving off and we're going to go and find food source somewhere else. Sure. There's a few contributing factors, but I definitely think that the orcas and the overfishing of smooth iron shark are two of the main contributing factors. It would make sense, definitely. There's something more to it. The amount of uh, lack of understanding that when you, you know, especially in the UK, when you go and buy your fish and chips and you're eating some of these things that you're looking up on the on the board and seeing the rock salmon and things like that, you're eating sharks yeah. generally. And yeah, I think there's a lot more education needed around that a, a lady called Lou Ruddle, who did Fin Fighters operation here in the UK, launched a, a fantastic campaign. So maybe we'll we'll try and catch up with her at some point. Yeah, it's one of those interesting sort of points, and uh, that keeps the scientists, you know, busy trying to find out exactly what's uh, what's what's ticking. Um, but you know, people like Alison Towner, based out in in Hansby, um, she does a brilliant job out there, sort of monitoring the orchid populations and also the predations on white sharks by the orcas, there's been a number of white sharks which have washed up on uh, on Hansby beaches, all with their livers removed, um, and all pretty much with identical bite marks, sort of just back of the mouth, below the gills, um, and, and yeah. just the livers being taken out. It has to be a factor somewhere, white sharks being as cautious as they are, yeah. you know. Whether it's a, a you know couple of orcas in the area, whether it's the overfishing, you know it's the same thing as when the uh, the old search boat rocked up and those sharks went nope out of here and and off they go. One hundred percent, and and nobody actually knows what these white sharks are letting off in the water because they all seem to disappear more or less at the same time over two days or so, one or two days after you know orcas or a negative presence has has come into the area. It's almost yeah. like they let off like a global sign to each other, like. Guys, it's time to run. It clearly happens. You know, it clearly happens that they all get worse somehow, <laughs> which is fascinating. Just shows you how little we understand about them. They clearly all go at the same time. So Yeah. The predation between an orca and white shark is is nature. That must take its path. But I do seriously hope that something can be done about the overfishing of, you know, smooth iron shark, which uh, which definitely needs to be stopped. You know, and I think if that stops and we and, and we're able to sort of bring that population back up. Hopefully, we'll see a return of the white sharks to False Bay. I want to ask you something you just mentioned there. Firstly, obviously, you said about potentially like surfers and with it being mistaken identity. But by the same account, when you say obviously you've seen one have a go at a you know, plastic or a, a buoy floating, floating in the water, you know, seen them breach on kelp, pieces of wood, you know, half a penguin. Do you genuinely think it is mistaken identity or is it just they will try and investigate anything and everything? And sometimes it just happens to be, you know, a surfer with his arms and legs over the board. I'll tell you it's a mixture of both mistaken identity and curiosity as to what is that thing floating on the surface. Humans have hands where they can use a knife and fork, you know, to, to cut your food or to to, to break things up. Yeah. Sharks, you know, they don't have hands, they, they, they have teeth. And that's the only way that they can test to see what that particular, you know, object on the surface is. Most times, you know, humans would, will survive it. But every now and then you do get sharks, which would actually go into sort of a, like an attack mode and, you know, come up at speed and just give it all they've got 
in that one bite. And unfortunately, that one bite can be the, the one which 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 causes you to more than likely to bleed out. Well, this is why I asked, because I would have thought from like a mistaken identity of shark sees surfer arms and legs over the board and says, hey, there's a seal or hey, there's a turtle. Yeah. I, I just would have expected to see a more sort of prolific amount of of what we would describe as an attack rather than an invest investigatory bite. Because if a shark, if a great white shark sees a surfer and thinks, hey, look, it's a seal, yeah, surely they're gonna have more of a go than what we actually tend to see, which is a bit of a bite and, you know, and an artery's kind of being cut or, you know, a, a foot's being damaged or something. Would would we not see it a bit more intense if it if it really thought you were a seal? Oh no, a hundred percent. I think, you know, I think it goes back to my early my earlier statement that if sharks, you know, if, if humans were on on the white sharks diet, that there would be shark attacks happening, I would say almost on a daily basis along along the Cape Town coast. Yeah. But you know, also these sharks are they're very in tune when it comes to noises and splashing. And I go back to an incident um, which happened in two thousand and six. He's actually a very very good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Ahmad Hasim. He was, I did life saving with, with, with Ahmad for many years. And he was actually, they were, him and his brother were actually doing a, a life saving, they were training um, in False Bay, at False Bay Life Saving Club off Musenberg. The two of them were in the water, maybe I'd say 15 meters apart. And they were doing inflatable rubber duck training. Ahmad was, was, was sort of in the water. He was the one that was gonna be picked up and his brother um, was in the water. And he saw the shark, Ahmad saw the shark come, going for his brother. And what Ahmad started doing was started splashing on the water, like making like big splashing noises. Right. And the shark actually turned from his brother and went for Ahmad and actually bit Ahmad on the ankle. It was actually very, very lucky that during the, this happened, the, the ILB, the rubber duck, just got there in time. And it was sort of like a tug of war where the ILB driver was trying to pull Ahmad onto the boat and the shark was hanging onto his ankle at the bottom. He ended up losing his whole ankle. It just shows you that if a shark is zoned in on a particular item and something else happens not far away, they can change their sort of direction and interest extremely quickly. Even, even the big guys, even like, you know, a five, five and a half meter you know, great white with girth. I've seen them just like turn on a dime and, and shoot the other way. Yeah. It's that speed along with the size that I think, well, maybe that's where some of the fear comes from as well. When you, when you see videos of that kind of thing. You know, I've seen, I've seen big sharks in the boats. I wouldn't say you, you don't actually realize the true size of it until I saw my first great white outside of the water. And this was, unfortunately was in 2012. We had a great white, which got caught in a whelk fishing net or fisher. Yeah. And I heard about this and I quickly got in my car and I, and I drove through Simonstown Harbor. We actually managed to see them sort of taking the shark out the water. And the shark was 4.3 meters uh, in length, but the girth was just over three meters. It's a massive animal at 4.3 meters. That It just makes you realize how big and how powerful these animals are. I'll put a link. I'll actually put that picture on the on the post here. If you're on the Facebook group uh, where you've come for this, or, uh, on the White Shark Interest Group, I'll actually put that picture there because Brandon did take. I'd hate to say, you know, you did take a, a fantastic photograph of it because it's such a horrible sight to see. Yeah. Um, so it's not that it's not that the, the site is fantastic. But again, I guess just the opportunity to have tragic as it is to see, like you say, the, the size and the girth of that 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 creature. Hundred percent. I mean, I, I I would also say that that for me it was quite educational, you know, because I could actually then see physically see, you know, the ampullae Lorenzini. I could see the close up of 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 exactly what the dorsal fin looked like, the eyes, the actual coloration of the eyes, the jaw, the teeth, you know, all these things which I've never managed to see while while seeing them sort of from the boat looking through the water. I managed to now 
see firsthand up close. And in turn, I was able to sort of pass that information on to my fellow guests. You know, when I was back on the shark diving boat, I could tell them exactly what the Ampilab Lorenzini looked like, what the exact coloration of the eyes. Yeah. So it was for me, it was it was sad, but also very educating at the same time. Have you have you seen other incidents while surfing? So I'm not sure about kayaking in a minute, but surfing in particular, have you or have any of your sort of surf buddies had other kind of experiences? Yeah, yeah, I've I've had I've had a, a few friends who. Uh, have been uh, have had close brushes with uh, with great whites i think i'd probably say nine or ten times it comes from that's that very uh, secluded surf spot which i told you about which which was the dunes yeah i'll just give you a bit of an idea of of the topography at dunes is it's a very very shallow sandbank and then it drops off very quickly into deep water you've got these sharks using that area as their their migration sort of their patterns, their their hunting grounds, their feeding areas. You know, they're looking for fish. They sort of on that drop off area. Got a very very good friend of mine, a water photographer, a guy by the name of Alan van Geesen, who shoots down that, who photographs surface from the water. And he's actually had an incident where he was in the water and the shark actually brushed right up against his leg. Wow! And he turned around and he said, all he could see was this massive grey shape in the water he was super fearful of it obviously he's had it he's had it happen to him a few times and he knows you know just just remain calm and don't make big splashing noises and he should have just sat there quietly calm slowly started kicking his flippers and heading to shore just letting the other guys know but even at fisher beach i've had instances of guys who have been training on their like paddle boards and in shallow 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 water i've had three and a half, four meter great whites, just casually swim straight under their boards. Yep. Showing showing no showing no sort of interest in them, but just, you know, I'd say, you know, obviously maybe come up to have a look at them potentially, but you know, just swim directly and, and then just move off, you know. You were involved, I remember, in in IDing a, a shark that had been photographed below someone's board. Yeah, how did that come about? This was when you know the shark spotting program had literally just started. That we we had the fishermen on Fishwick Mountain. They were spotting for their sort of fishing crews on the beach when when the yellowtail used to come into the bay. They would row their boats out and you know and and, and catch the fish. But what we started doing was we gave the fishermen a radio and we had our own radio and. As soon as they spotted a shark, they would let us know and we would go out and clear the water. And then we would go out with a rubber duck and just see in the area where, where the shark was. And it's all very, very much early days when people were still trying to understand, you know, how these sharks were moving, how often they were coming in, what track across the beach they were taking. And the one day I actually went out on the rubber duck on this particular day and I had my, my I had a like a little water camera with me and I stuck my camera under the water and we photographed these sharks from, from underneath the water. Yeah. These were big animals. Like our, our rubber duck is 4.2 meters long. And I wouldn't say that it's as big as the, as as a rubber duck, but I'll probably say three and a half meters long. Do you, even though you're on a little inflatable, you feel a little bit vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I bet. It eventually got stopped that we uh, we were no longer allowed to go out and you know ID these animals at the time because. 
you know, you're in a rubber duck, you've got no no propeller guard at the back. And the danger to to inflict harm on these animals is, is quite big because all, all it needs is that shark to take one wrong turn and it can get cut by the prop guard. So what we decided to do was just let the animal take its course and then the fisherman fishing spot on the mountain would actually, um, he started like an ID sort of um, sheet. He would draw a picture of, of the shark's movement. Yeah. You know, Alison Koch, one of the one of the one of the researchers at the time who was studying these great whites, could actually get a good movement pattern on exactly where the sharks were entering the bay, where they were exiting the bay, how much time they were spending in the bay, the approximate size of the animal. So so much research came out of a collaboration between the fishermen and the lifeguards, which we were able to pass on to, on, on to Alison, you know, and she used that in her data for a PhD, I think, if, uh, if I think if I'm correct. And that is a perfect example of what, on the last episode of the show, the last episode was about fishing and aquariums and so on. And Melissa Markson, one of our admins said that fishing, particularly fishermen do get a lot of, a lot of flack on our group sometimes because people think that fishing just means killing sharks, which is a hundred percent, obviously not true in any way, shape or form. But she said in the early days, so much much of what we now look at as shark research and shark conservation efforts w- was actually driven and contributed to by fishermen because they're out on the water. They know the water. They know the animals, you know? 100%. There was actually a, a really good example of education between um, fishermen and cage dive operators. One of the one of the other cage dive operators from Seal Island, Chris Fellows, he became very, very good friends, or should I say he befriended one of the per se netters who used to, or he still does today, catch fish off the beach directly um, north of Seal Island at a place called Strandfontein. This particular area is very common for bronze whaler sharks to be uh, swimming in summertime. And a lot of the time, these fishermen would catch these bronze whalers in their nets. And in the early days, these fishermen were actually taking these sharks, you know, and and, and selling them and, and things like that. And Chris Fellows actually went down there and started educating the guy saying, look, you know, these sharks are actually valuable to our to our oceans, you know, they, yep. they help control certain fish stocks and, and things like that. And now they actually release every single shark which they, which has been sort of caught in the net. Which again just backs up the, you know, the power of, of dialogue and, and, you know, and having a conversation on these things and not, not instantly vilifying someone just because, you know, they're a fisherman or just because they ever once happened to have caught a shark. It can happen, you know, so it's education and conversation. You know, that, that education and that dialogue, you know, if someone like, like yourself in the area, surfer, cage diving operator, whoever it is, starts seeing fishermen catching sharks, you can try and shut them down and you can try and vilify them or you can go and have a conversation with them. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think, I think it comes down to education at the end of the day. If you're able to speak to them on a, on a personal level and, and try and understand, I suppose, where they're coming from and try and get your point across. Most of the time, I think they will they will understand that you know, and they'll come to realize that sharks play an extremely important part of our oceans. It's really good to see that individuals are are taking the time out to, to look at shark education and conservation and get involved. They're slowly but surely starting to realize how how important it is for these animals to be swimming in the oceans and not end up on a plate in in a bowl of soup. Sure. Tell me from a from a surfing point of view, you're out there in the water and you know there's a shark around you. Mm. From your experience from from both lifesaving and surfing and being on bomb boats and observing the behavior and so on, what what do you think is the right course? 
course of action to take if you see that because as as knowledgeable as you are you're still going to have a little bit of a panic moment surely i'll go i'll go back to my very first interaction with the great white shark in false bay outside of a cage it was the 9th of september 2002 and i was actually paddle i was actually kayaking on, on my surf ski out towards roman rock lighthouse yeah and it was a very, very light southeasterly wind. We were paddling into the wind. And I actually had a had a great white come up. And I'd, I'll, what I would like to think would be at the last minute realized that it's not what he's after. And he sort of backed out. So he hit me at the back of my kayak, which knocked me out. Yeah. Um, he then swam around the kayak two or three times. And then he sort of did this vertical dive. So as he turned, I think it was all in panic mode, panic mode for the shark as well, because what actually happened, he swam around the front and his, his caudal fin actually knocked the front of my uh, of my kayak, which gave him quite a big fright. And the whole caudal fin came out the water and he dived directly underneath me. What gave it away for me is I looked at the top of the caudal on the Great White, you get that small sort of arch, sort of indentation at the top of the caudal fin. Yep. I knew straight away, it was a shock, but everything happened so quickly. Yeah. I got into my kayak and I just started paddling, splashing, which was probably totally the wrong thing to do. And in today's times, they just say, you know, you need to remain calm. It's hard to remain calm when something, when an incident like that has just happened. A couple of years later on, I was doing the same paddle, but this time I was coming from Millis Point and I just entered into Fishuk Bay and it was dead, dead, dead flat water. Yeah. And I literally paddled straight over the shock. Like I literally split him straight in half. All I did was I just carried on, like I carried on paddling, but trying to make as minimal splash as possible. And that shark actually didn't even turn on me. That shark just carried it on its path, on its track towards the catwalk, which is exactly the same path, which the sharks are generally taking to this day. Yeah, They enter Fishuk from either sort of Cork Bay. They make their track directly across Fishuk Bay towards the catwalk and then they go back out along the catwalk towards Simonstown. Even in today's terms or today's times, if I'm in the water and I know someone's seen a shark, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to paddle probably to the nearest person I can see because if you've got a big sort of group of people, safety numbers, big bulky area, and the shark's not going to go for a big item. They, they'll they go for the individuals, yep. an individual person yep. who's sort of segregated from a group or who's alone. So I would try and get everybody to, to, to come together and ideally sort of just stay calm, as calm as possible and paddle back. You don't want to be that straggling seal at the back of the pack, do you? It's very difficult to for me to say how I'd react because everybody reacts differently. Yeah. And depending on how you're feeling at the time, depending on the surf location where you're at, is how you're going to sort of determine your your nature of of your reaction. I guess one of the things is 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 not to try and put yourself in any increased level of, of risk in the first place. Because I know I've often heard of of incidents and and even in some cases what you might deem an attack when someone has gone out swimming mm. in a known white shark area yeah. at a known white shark hunting time. You know, uh, say sunrise and and yeah. being around, uh, you know, a pack of seals. I guess you can decrease the risk by not putting yourself in that kind of situation in the first place and having the foresight rather than what you do after. A hundred percent. You know, if, if you can try and minimize the chances by not surfing at, at sunrise or, or not surfing at sunset, then that is the way that you should do things. But being a surfer, you know, sometimes being in the water at, at sunrise or sunset is the best time to be in the water. I was just going to say, it's so that's part of what it's about, yeah. That's exactly it. You know, it's, it's about being in the water at sunrise or sunset. I mean, I was up the coast 
Um, actually, last year when I was back in South Africa, I was in the water before the sun came up. That was the most surreal experience. Yeah. There was no one in the water. I still paddle out because I knew that's what I wanted. And it was just, you know, it was amazing. It was really, really really special can i ask you about a topic that that does come up time to time on the group and it's quite a controversial one because people have some crazy things that they want to say when someone has unfortunately died you know a surfer mm-hmm. has died we start seeing comments pop up on the group occasionally sometimes these people don't stay on the group very long who can make really insensitive comments about it afterwards yeah a, a kind of an instant reaction for some people is just maybe a, a misunderstanding of well they kind of they knew what they were doing or you know will you take that risk they live in the ocean not us and you know and it's it's their home so you shouldn't go in it or you know you knew the risk when you did go in it ranging yeah. right through to really insensitive comments of saying things like what's the big problem he'll have died happy because he's a surfer what a great way to die and things like that which is to me is horrendously insensitive to you know, to the families and so on. But how how does the surfing community tend to react when when an incident's happened with a fellow surfer? Every single time there's been a shark attack in in Cape Town, immediately fing- fingers are being pointed at the cage diving boats. Right. The surfers always point fingers at the cage diving boats, saying that the cage diving boats are conditioning the sharks to assume the boats um, have food and that cage diving needs to be banned and stopped. There was a period of time where there was a shark attack happened in False Bay. And the case diving operations were, were were paused due to pressure from the public and the Department of Environmental Affairs actually put a pause on, on case diving in, in certain areas. Yeah. And it had zero effect. A couple of years later there was a there was another shark attack and once again fingers get pointed at the cage diving boats. But I also I also like to think that the media tend to blow shark attacks up because it's it, it's a massive incident. Teeth and things like that on the front page of a paper are going to attract viewers and readers. And I've also, I've had a time where I've actually got interviewed by a, a paper and I gave them my honest you know, opinions. What I told them and what was written in the paper the next day was totally opposite. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. They basically spun the story totally the other way. You know, and I actually, you know, I, I did take it up with them. But, you know, what do they do? They say, I oh, know we we apologize. But the story's already been put out there. Yep. Individuals and, and surfers, they are they are sympathetic, 100%. But we all understand at the end of the day that there are inherent dangers. But I've never experienced where with fellow friends of mine who have been attacked and then you get vile, vile comments from, you know, lobby groups or, or things like that. I suppose it depends who's... Um who's involved with it and like you say how, how much it's been blown out of proportion yeah i've noticed a far a far different reaction when uh you know from headlines and so on like we were talking earlier about the mick fanning incident yeah yeah the way the way that that report was reported if that hadn't been a surfer a high profile surfer in a competition and like live on tv and so on then then if it was just Joe Bloggs on the street who was out surfing and that happened to, it would have been reported with ridiculous sensation, you know, how it it went to attack him, it stalked him, it, you know, it went for him. You know, because of, of the outcome and because of how it was viewed and because it's high-profile surfing, you know, it was almost like played, I wouldn't say jovial, but it was like, hey, crazy, man punches shark, you know, and it, it was all done a little bit sort of lighter reporting than the, than the scaremongering. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that was purely because of the situation, you know, the, yeah. the guy's stayed calm he did what he needed to do it was live on tv it was you know it was such a a rare thing to actually see on live tv and it's a surfer it's suddenly not this like well no one saw it so we'll just write whatever the hell we want yeah which is you know shark attacks man shark stalks and stalking is a word i hear all the time yeah 
yeah stalking the boat it's like it's not it's swimming there's a lot of good which which came out of that that incident with with all with all mcfadden you know he um he was quite sort of shaken up off the whole incident yeah but what he's actually gone into now, he's he's since then retired, but now he's actually involved in shark conservation himself. Yep. He's been in a couple of sort of conservation documentaries, which is really good. You know, it's, he's giving back to to what sort of has given him a career and a lifestyle in terms of surfing and being in the ocean. He wants to now sort of give back and, and educate people that these sharks are not man-eaters, that they're out there just doing their thing. Um, like you said, they're just swimming around. And he was just... I would say in the wrong place at the wrong time, which majority of the people are when they get attacked by a shark. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's circumstance, you know. It's not that anybody's done anything wrong, which again is why I don't understand the comments about, well, you know, you get in the ocean, you take the risk. Well, you get in your car, you take a risk. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to work, you take a risk. There's no, there's not really any difference there. What I, what I did think was was really interesting there is every time uh, an incident happens, it's exactly what you just said. If ever I've seen a surfer who's been bitten and survived or, or anybody who's been bitten and survived or people whose family members who've had someone tragically die, 99.9% of the time, all I ever see is the positive message after. Don't blame the shark. It's just happened. You know, it's tragic, but it's just happened. Yeah. Don't blame the shark. Don't go hunting. Don't go. Don't go sending Quint and his boys out on the boat <laughs> with dynamite, like in Jaws. You know, to go get this beast. I, I really do think that 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 mentality has has changed because I'm sure there would have been a time it would have been surfer gets attacked by a, a shark quick, rather than pitchforks, and let's go out there and get this creature. Yeah. Some people still think like that, but I, I really do think that's changed in, and I think it's that that kind of education that you're talking about. I don't. I don't think I can remember. Like you said, I I think I can remember even with all the shark attacks which have which have happened over in Australia on on the west coast over over the last few years that the families have ever been negative to they've all come out and said you know it was an isolated incident unfortunate that that it happened you know there's there's no there's no cause for going out killing the sharks it comes down to the down to the press again the press are the ones which are which are blowing the situation up which in turn have caused the western you know australian government to you know introduce drum lines yeah try and catch these to catch these animals you know taking out one or two sharks from from a specific area is going to change nothing because these sharks are moving massive distances they're not resident to any area yeah so taking out one or two sharks in in an area is, is is doing nothing you know just the mentality is it but you're right the, the media is the fit it'd be it'd be nice when you get these incidents happening that that last paragraph somewhere buried very deep down that you know average joe's not reading where the family did say this is just what he loved doing and it's just nature and you cannot blame the shark. Kind of bump that up in the narrative somewhere a little bit more at the top. Yeah. Um, I think it's a hard push to actually get most media to turn around and actually report it in any other kind of way than clickbait and the drama and the headlines. But if we can at least get that positive attitude of, of what's happened and the educational side of it bumped up a little bit in the in the reports would be would be good. But that's where, you know, folks like yourself and and a lot of members of our group and what we do, that's I guess that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, education is key. I think to success of a of 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 the of the ocean and and its animals, which which live in it. Well, I hate to say it, Brandon, but we are just about out of time. This is probably going to be our longest podcast yet, which is exactly why I wanted you on the show because we've got a lot to talk about, and I I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I think some amazing insights there into shark behaviour and surfing mentality and so on. So, thank you so much for for coming on. No, Ricardo. Thank you very much, and thanks to all the members of the of the White Shark industry for for uh, for listening 
to this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and those of you who uh, haven't been cage diving or been in the water with uh, great white sharks or sharks in general, you know, I think it's definitely something that should be put on your bucket list. Um, so go out there, start saving those pennies and um, yeah, let's save and conserve and protect. Thanks so much for coming on, man. If uh, if anybody, just check the links below on the group or if you're not a member, as I said, do join the group. I'll obviously put some of uh, Brandon's photography uh, and work under there as well. You check that because I would love to have you back on and talk about that. I mean, photography alone, you've taken some fantastic images. So if you'd like to come back and talk about that and other topics someday, I would love to have you back on. Definitely. You know, I'd love to share my knowledge and experience uh, from working at Seal Island. I think I've done, like I said, nine seasons. So slowly but surely managed to uh, acquire the skills um, and managed to capture some really, really special uh, images and memories over the years. And I'd love to share that with the rest of the members. We'd love to see it. So just but as I say, anybody who's not a member already, White Shark Interest Group, we are the largest White Shark specific group on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. Just search White Shark Interest Group. You can also check us out on Instagram at White Shark underscore interest group, where we don't just post images. And I will put some of uh, Brandon's images on there, but we also put a little bit of knowledge and facts behind those images as well. You can check us out on YouTube. That might be where you're listening to this podcast right now. Just search White Shark Interest Group YouTube and our website at whitesharkinterestgroup.com. Have I said White Shark Interest Group enough times? Without further ado, thanks once again to Brandon. Take care. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. And we will see you guys on the next episode. <laughs>